I'm a New York Times bestselling author. I've been in movies that broke box office records. I've traveled the world tenfold over. How am I in this little mom and pop diner washing dishes? And I, once again, I had accepted the fact that if I drink, I will die. And that my way ends up with a needle in my arm. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to do what you ask. And within four days of washing dishes, I got a promotion to waiting tables. I got hooked on heroin when I was 17 or 18. I was living in San Diego, California at the time, and I used speed every day. I smoked whatever I could get my hands on, and I drank all that I could. There wasn't a lot of barriers for me because I was young and I was a girl, and I was still all cartilage, you know? I didn't even get hung over in those days. Let's just say that it was kind of a recipe for disaster. After I overdosed and almost died right after my 18th birthday, I decided that it was time to get away for a while. Instead of going to treatment, I went to Europe. My parents paid for a plane ticket to fly me into Paris, and I went all by myself for three months. It was predictably a shit show. But at the same time, Europe was beautiful. I'd never been anywhere like it before. It was magical, like a fairy tale. But I was still very young, and I wasn't able to get my substance of choice every day. And you know that for an addict and an alcoholic, loneliness is the worst fucking thing that you can go through. So I was in southern France, and I was very lonely. And uh, since I didn't speak French, I still don't speak French, I probably will never speak French. I decided to just go for a walk. Yet another walk. It was either that or just drink coffee and smoke cigarettes. And I had a lot of things to see, so I put my shoes on and headed out. And I heard this funny noise, um, this echo. Like that. I was in Marseille, which is one of the harbor towns in southern France, and it's beautiful. It's all cobblestones and medieval buildings, narrow alleys and tile roofs and tiny chapels tucked away between the houses. It was beautiful. And I followed that sound because something about it was a little bit familiar. I turned a corner and there were four guys my age who were skateboarding in the village square. And I immediately felt at home. They all knew who Tony Hawk was. They all knew who Brandon Novak was, and I laughed when I heard them say things like kickflip and ollie and 180 in their French accents. See, they didn't speak English, and I didn't speak French, but we both spoke skateboarding, and for a minute, I got to feel at home again. I have that same feeling now when I connect with other people in recovery. I may not speak your language, and you may not speak mine, but we both speak recovery. And knowing that there's a community of people worldwide who are all on the same mission as me, all on the same journey and the same path, is incredibly comforting. The loneliness is gone. I've been sober for almost 10 years, and it was with great pleasure that I got to talk to Brandon Novak. 
internationally renowned skateboarder and sober dude. Welcome to the first episode of The First Cut, brought to you live from addictionunscripted.com. Can you tell me about the first time you got on a skateboard? Um, the first time I, I, I remember the first time I got on a skateboard, I was seven years old, and I was in Ocean City, Maryland. And my sister knew a professional skateboarder that lived there, and I was at the Ocean City Bowl. And that day when he gave me the skateboard, A, I was really impressed that somebody like personally picked me out to give me something because I came from a, a rather tough household. My mother was, uh, she worked in a hospital. She now recently retired as a nuclear physicist, but she, she started out like drawing blood for $5 a pop at the age of 15. So um, during that age, she was still like climbing the ranks. My brother and sister were, my sister was living in Ocean City, Maryland. My brother was heavily entranced in school, which he's now currently a lawyer. He does pensions and benefits. Um, but so, and my father was a crack addict. He smoked crack every day, all day, Lately, later ultimately dying from his disease of addiction. Um, so I was kind of passed around a lot between my sister and my brother and my mother when she could watch me. So I really didn't have anyone to give me too much 100% of their attention. So I remember being at Ocean City, Maryland, and this professional skateboarder, I was just intrigued. I was in awe by skateboarding. I don't know what it was, but it just had me the first time I saw it. And when he was done skating, he came up to me and he gave me a skateboard. And that night when I went home to bed, my mother put me to bed and she said, Brandon, what do you want me to do with the skateboard? I said, I want it in bed with me. She said, why? I said, because if I die, I want it to come with me. It was like at that point in time, God had came down and handed me the Holy Grail in the form of a skateboard. And I knew it from that day on that I was going to be a professional skateboarder. I ate it. I breathed it. I slept it. I dreamt it. At 16, I became it, you know? That's amazing. Yeah, and it just, it was just natural so like, to you. Yeah. Like, yeah, like like schooling wasn't important. Plan B, a trade, like that did not matter because I knew that's what I was going to be without a shadow of a doubt. And you were just in it. So is that yeah? Is that kind of I mean, in Portland, obviously, like we have a we have a really healthy skate culture here. Um, you know, skate youth, punk, um, and part of that, yeah, you know, especially with the homeless youth, is drugs. Um, and it's not uncommon to see something passed around at the skate parks here. Is that where you started using? Um, I, it, no, oddly enough, it wasn't. And I know it runs rampant in the skateboarding world. Um, but at, at the point in time, no, because all I was fixated on was skateboarding. I didn't care about women. I didn't care about drugs. I didn't care about sports, work, skateboarding was it. That was it. And, uh, but what it did do is it allowed me to live, uh, for lack of better words, extreme lifestyle. It allowed me to go where I want it, when I want it, with whom I want it, and do whatever I want it. You know, so, and I didn't really have any repercussions to my actions because, like, I was just so entranced in skateboarding. It had me. So it kind of had me living that lifestyle before I realized that it could bring harm if I wasn't vigilant, you know, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Did you, um, did you skate while high? I mean, 
At the end, I did. Yeah, I remember being uh, doing a demo in Chicago, and, and I just shot up a whole bunch of smack, and I was so sick, like I, I was falling asleep. I was high, and at one point in time during the demo, I stopped and just threw up all over the course, and and it was at that point in time that they kind of had enough of me, and they asked me to kindly leave the tour. Which I understood, and at the time I was kind of like happy because there was no one time, you know, when you hear people share they had that aha moment with drugs and alcohol. Like I didn't have that. Um, skateboarding did for me later what drugs and alcohol did for me. You know, you could put me into a room with the million of the prettiest women, and and, and I felt completely as if because I had my skateboard with me. You know, kind of like yeah. how drugs did for me later. Yeah, it gave me that sense of confidence. Yeah. Say. So um so then once I had been doing it and somewhere along the lines I got wrapped up with drugs and alcohol, I didn't know that I was part of that ten percent yet that once I pick it up, I don't have the privilege of choices and options of when I will put it down or what I will and will not do for ten more dollars or another bag of heroin. If you're good at something, you do it a lot. And if you feel called to do something, you do it a lot, a lot, a lot. Skating was Brandon's passion, and so, of course, he jumped right in. I mean, wouldn't you? What he didn't know was that he was destined to become a heroin addict and an alcoholic as well. And unfortunately, skateboarding and his lifestyle went hand-in-hand hand with drug abuse and a whole bunch of people co-signing a whole bunch of bullshit. Does the name Jackass ring any bells? If you were alive and even kind of aware of pop culture in the early 2000s, this should be a household name. I mean, come on, the stunts were legendary. The shopping cart covered in rockets, uh, the beer bong in the butt, the mechanical bull, and the midget toss. They made headlines for being ridiculous on so many levels, and Brandon was right in the middle of that. His group included some of the jackass guys, including Bam and Johnny Knoxville, and he had this lifestyle that was just studded with extreme athletes and punk bands. A mechanical bull was not a big deal. It was part of the day-to-day. -day. So in addition to appearing on Jackass, he also toured the world and raised hell on several continents. He continued skateboarding, he broke box office records, and he became a household name. If you've heard of Tony Hawk, you should have heard of Brandon Novak. On the surface, he was a success. Everybody had heard of him. He was getting to do what he loved, and he was thriving. But he was also in active addiction, and so shit was not exactly working out. I am not famous. Um, I have never been famous. I probably will never be famous. And what freaks me out is the idea of having to negotiate a relapse or like negotiate getting sober with people looking at me. I mean, I detoxed off of heroin and alcohol alone in a studio apartment in Southwest Portland. I had no help. I didn't mm -hmm. go to treatment. It was a shit show, you know? Sure. Um, and so, you know, I see in the media people, you know, people like you or 
you know, who, whoever who were like, ah, so-and-so relapsed. Here's a bunch of pictures of them looking miserable. And I think, fuck, like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Well, by the grace of God, man, like I haven't been one of those people yet. Uh, my, I entered my first treatment center at the age of 17. Uh, I didn't get it till I was 35 in my last treatment center. Um, but in between those times, I never portrayed the guy that was clean and sober. You know, like I, 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 there would, I would go times where I wasn't shooting dope, but I would just drink wine. And in the public eye, that's socially acceptable, you know, uh, to people who don't understand this, this disease. So there was never a time that I had, like now this is the first time that I've ever had uh, sober in my life. I, I had one time I went to prison for a year and uh, I sniffed some cocaine in there a couple of times. And then one other time when I was free, uh, I, I was able to put together 60 days and, and, and I, I hated life every day because I, I, you know, I didn't find the, something to fill that void, that inner void that is talked about in the program. Um, so like every day I wanted to drink and I was angry that I, I didn't want to shoot heroin cause I knew what that brought. I knew the pain the destruction, the turmoil that comes along with a bag of heroin and cocaine. So I was cool without that, but I just always wanted to drink. And, uh, so every day I was angry that I had lost the ability to drink like a quote unquote normal human being, you know? And, uh, what I had never done was work the steps. I had never experienced the steps. I, I, I kicked and screamed the whole way through. And this time, when I was so low that the curb was a skyscraper, I wanted to kill myself, but I didn't want to hurt myself in the process. And I was horrible at suicide because I kept waking up. That I said, fuck it, man. Like, do with me what you will. Because, like, uh, you know, as the disease of my, as my, my, my disease progressed, so did my treatment stays. And not in a good way. Same with my disease of addiction. Like, my first treatment centers were the creme de la creme, you know, the acupuncture, the the art therapy, the, the music, the yoga, all, all that shit. And then at the end, it was a, uh, it, it was a state-ran facility, and it cost me $2 to get into. And if I could make it to this group three days in a row at 7 a.m. called a holding group, if I made it to three of those days consecutively, that ensured me a bed because it showed the willingness was there. And in this rehab, you literally were not allowed to look out of the blinds because they were serving heroin and cocaine right on the street corner out front. You could have six cigarettes a day. Uh, it was in an old uh, psychiatric hospital, very strange place. But that's, you know what I mean. So, I, I, I just, I, I just had enough. I, I had enough, and I knew that finally I didn't know. And and finally, what happened was I was beaten into a state of reasonableness. I had been beaten to submission many a times, but this time I was beaten into a state of reasonableness. What I like to call it is that just right ass woman. Because I had a lot of ass women, but this time I had that just right one. And I said, fuck it, man. I'm in. Like, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do because I finally know that I don't know. Yeah. And when I do know, I have a needle in my arm or a bottle in my mouth. Yeah. That's that's really well put. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's, and, you know, because I've seen me do it. Like, you know what I mean? For 24 years, I've battled with addiction and alcoholism. And what I would do is I would come into rehabs, to treatment centers, to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and I would outthink myself out of a seat every time. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
It's like nobody's so, uh, nobody's too dumb to get this, but a lot of people are too smart. That couldn't be more true of a word. <laughs> you know, and I always felt that I was so internally unique that it would not, could not, will not work for me. I remember being in my first treatment center at 17 years old. For some reason, I forget how it happened, there was an anniversary in there, and a fellow celebrated a year. And, and I remember the guy's mother was up front, and she'd watch the son celebrate a year, and when he got his coin, he gave it to his mother. And, and, and I remember sitting in that meeting, and I love my mother more than anything in the world, and I remember sitting in that rehab in that meeting, and I said, God, I would give anything to be able to experience this, getting a year, my mother in the front row, me giving the coin to her. But unfortunately, it cannot work for me. Yes, it works for all you people, but it just won't work for me. You know? Yeah. And, and I literally had dreams of that night. I dreamt of that night for 24 years, you know, off and on here and there. I have dreams of that night. And, like, I can report today that, you know, almost nine, nine months ago, like, I was able to make that dream come a reality. You, you did it. You gave your coin to your mom. Yeah. Yeah. She lives in Baltimore. She lives in Baltimore. I had her brought up to Philadelphia uh, to my home group where I, where I had my year anniversary. And she sat up front at the age of 75. And, like, she, you know, it's crazy because I've accomplished these really cool things in life that most people equate to success or happiness. Um, and oddly enough, you know, uh, being in these movies that break box office records, a New York Times bestseller, a former professional skateboarder, blah, blah, blah. The most proudest achievement in my life was uh, the day that I went into rehab. <laughs> <laughs> That's rad. I swear to God. This time, going to the last treatment center, the same, I've been in 13 inpatient treatment centers. I've lost count of outpatients and detoxes. This last time in this last treatment center, I had been to the same one four times prior to going in this time. And, and I walk in, and, and like I said, in theory and on paper, very successful individual. In reality, my worldly possessions consisted of eight scarves, two jackets, three socks, and a stick of deodorant, which all fit into a bag that doubles as my pillow. And, and I had these clothes on that, uh, it's a long story, but I got, I got robbed the night before when I was going to buy dope and, and I had these like dress slacks on. I had these at once point in time, nice Brooks Brothers shoes on, but I lost the shoestring around my arm somewhere along the way. And I had this button up shirt on. I went to go buy heroin and they robbed me and they ripped my front pockets out and my back pockets out and I don't wear underwear. So my dick's hanging out, my ass is hanging out. Uh, my shirt completely got ripped open except for my very top button. And I got these Brooks Brothers shoes on with one shoestring and, and I'm looking like a gay East L.A. cholo kind of guy. <laughs> and and I go into rehab dressed like this and my counselor, she looks at me, she says, Mr. Novak, you're back again. I said, yep. She said, if you play your cards right, today can be the best day of your life. And I looked at her, I said, Christina, do you need a urinalysis? Like, are you high? You know what I've done. You know who I am. You know what, what, I, what I'm capable of doing. There's no way in hell that this day today can be the best day of my life. And, and, and lo and behold, looking back on it now, coming 19 months, is that day was the best day of my life. And what happened was she saw me what I did not see in myself, you know, because I, I just I couldn't grasp that. So now, like, when I'm trying to help fellows, I, I, I kind of tell them the same thing. 
it's funny because this thing's all like regurgitated shit, like recycled information, and but it's so true. Yeah. So, did you skateboard in rehab? Is that allowed? <laughs> uh yeah, I could have if I wanted to, but like I, I didn't, I didn't want to because like I had finally accepted in my life that like if I drink one more time, I will die. If I do one more of anything, I will die. See, I had known that I was an addict alcoholic for years. If that wasn't the case, my mother wouldn't have bought me a plot. Life insurance policies wouldn't have been taken out on me. I wouldn't have been on life support for seven days, right? So I knew that I, drug and alcohol made my life unmanageable. But the moment the terms of my contract had changed is when I accepted it. Because then it allowed Brandon to get out of Brandon's way. So when I was in this last rehab for 90 days, like... uh there wasn't any time for like laughing, joking, playing, um, like me time, alone time. Like the stakes were fucking high. So like I, I, I listened, I observed, uh, and, and I took notes. And, and and I remember what they told me in rehab, man. They said, "Boys do what they want to do, men do what they have to do." And I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, I'm 35 years old. Realistically. I'm a man, but in reality, like, I'm a fucking boy. I've lived like a boy for 35 years. So finally, I suited up, I showed up, I did what was, you know, what was asked of. I acted like my life depended on it because I finally accepted that my life does depend on this. So I just, I, I wasn't in the mood to, like, go out in the parking lot and do some kickflips and shit. You know what I mean? I wanted to take advantage of every minute I had going on here. Yeah, you took it very seriously. Yeah, absolutely. So one thing, you know, one thing that I notice, especially like in the first five years, um, people seem to have some trouble. I mean, I think that there's like a bumpy landing for some of us where like you come to and you're like, the fuck did I do? <laughs> where are we? <laughs> you know, you come absolutely. up sober and you're like, the fuck, you know, the fuck do I do now? Um, and it seems yeah. like a lot of people have a hard time learning to how, learning like how to have fun again. Like I totally agree. I, I can give you a prime example, man. So I get sober this time, right? My umpteenth treatment center, people are tired of hearing about it. I'm tired of hearing about it. So my old, my old cycle would be like, I would go to rehab, I would get out, I would continue doing what I've always done. Like I would go on tour. I would start filming again with the jackass guys or, or go running with them, touring the world, doing whatever. And, and I would start drinking and I would start sniffing Coke. Then I would want to go to bed. So I'd eat Xanax and then I had a needle mom. So this time I'm in treatment, right? And I successfully complete treatment. And my sponsor told me, he said, I went to a sober house for a year. So I said, okay, I'll go to a sober house for a year. I get to this sober house and I call my manager and I say, okay, like my rent's $165 a week, $660 a month, $665 a month. And he said, okay. I said, so do you need the names, the person's name to send the check to? Um, because I still had some finances, some resources left. And he said, no, we're not going to do that. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, Brandon, what you're going to do is you're going to get a job. You're going to open up your own private bank account. You're going to pay for your rent. You're going to pay for your groceries. You're going to pay for your cigarettes. You're going to pay your way for once. And and I was terrified, right, because my ego, my pride, I was like, dude, I, if people see me working a different kind of thing than I've always done, they're going to say, what the fuck happened to Novak? 
So what they did was they got me a job in a restaurant uh, that they someone knew. And I'm 35 years old, and, and I'm in the kitchen washing dishes next to a 15-year-old kid. And, and, and that hit me, just what you said. I said, I got sober to fucking wash dishes? Like, are you kidding me? Uh, this is absurd. This is ridiculous. Like, I don't get it. But, you know, I always say it's hard to shoot dope when the, when, when, when the bag's cut with N.A. It's hard to drink a glass of wine when the bottle's cut with A.A. Because, like, it just doesn't quite sit right so well. So when I, I would hear some things, that meant I learned some things. That meant I was to be held accountable for my actions. And I remember, you know, in treatment, them saying, like, I had to practice humility. And, and, and it was so much easier said than done, but I remember washing dishes with this 15-year-old kid, and I said, like, I'm, I'm a New York Times bestselling author. Um, I've been in movies that broke box office records. I've traveled the world tenfold over. How am I in this little mom-and-pop diner washing dishes? And I, once again, I had accepted the fact that if I drink, I will die, and that my way ends up with a needle in my arm. So I said, you know what? I'm just going to do what you ask. And within four days of washing dishes, I got a promotion to waiting tables. Um, and, and then like I started to <clears throat> meet people in the program. I started to realize that like once I had made it through a few trials and tribulations and came out on the other side of it at peace, I knew that like life was obtainable again. You know, I had bought a kitten. I had this kitten that I was taking care of. So the kitten like now relied on me. I was feeding the cat. I was living in this house. I was paying my own bills. I was making friends, and, and it, it wasn't solely evolved around, like, heroin or alcohol or cocaine. It was just about, like, the common bond of a few alcoholics trying to stay sober. These days, Brandon works at a treatment center. He calls himself a concierge. He's the connection, the hookup. He uses his resources to help other struggling addicts and alcoholics get the help they need just the way that he once needed help as well. Since he got sober and started actually participating in his own recovery, Brandon's been really serious about helping anybody who reaches out. If you want to talk or if you need help connecting with the treatment center, you can give him a call. He publishes his phone number online and in every interview he does, just so that he can help the suffering addict. Be careful when that pink cloud wears off. I don't know about them, man, but for me, this pink cloud will never wear off because all I have to do is just have a, a lapse of reality and, and remember when I was on the street corners of Baltimore City selling my ass for $40 to whoever would buy, man or woman, and not because I wanted to, but like I said, because when I use, I lose the privilege to have choices and options of what I will or will not do, and then significantly, I find myself using against my will, which is a really sad fucking lonely place that I don't wish on my worst enemy you know so like life's not that heavy man like life's quite all right and I actually enjoy it so like it. it wasn't hard for me to like find the beauty in things because like where I came from was not beautiful to hear more incredible stories of recovery sobriety and making it against the odds check out our website at addictionunscripted.com I'm Claire Foster, and this is The First Cut. Thanks for listening.